Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein policy directors Drew Lippman and Brian McGuire join strategic advisor Mark Begich for a political update that includes the impact of sexual harassment claims in Congress, what happens if Roy Moore wins the Alabama Senate seat, and Tom Cotton potentially being tapped to head the CIA. Welcome back to another Brownstein podcast. This one's on kind of what's happening in the political arena. We're here as usual with Drew Littman and Brian McGuire. Thank you both for joining us here. Drew Littman, policy director, previously served as Senator Al Franken's chief of staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislative policy and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer, four of those years as policy director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as a senior counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews-Burwell. Also joining us today is Brian McGuire, Policy Director here at Brownstein, which uh, was most recently Senator Mitch McConnell's Chief of Staff, where he advised on strategic communications, politics, and policy. Before that, he served for eight years in a variety of senior communication roles in Senator McConnell's Senate Leadership Office. Outside of McConnell's office, Brian consulted for the NRSC during Senator Jeff Flake's 2012 election and is a speechwriter for the Secretary of Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Bush administration. His writings have appeared in the publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and Politico. Thank you both for joining us today. And I want to start with the, the hot button issue that's out there, and it seems to consume the media on a daily basis, and this is not Trump, but this is uh, sexual harassment issues, all these issues that are starting to come to light in the political arena uh, right now on many different levels. You know, it's not just, um, you know, one incident. It seems like there's a constant and it's creating kind of a, you know, in an odd way, some bipartisan work on some new rules and regulations that people should operate under within Congress. But what do you think it's doing to the political environment and the ability to get work done in Congress? Or is it just not that big of a, you know, I don't want to downgrade the issue, but is it with all the other big issues of policy, is just a side issue that people can deal with? Or is it over, is it consuming people right now? And I guess I'll turn to Brian first and, and give me your thoughts there. Because I think it's it, it's it is a bipartisan issue. There's no question about it. Democrats and Republicans are are uh, coming to light that have these issues. Yeah, I think it's a power issue. I think people have abused their positions of authority and um, taken advantage of people who are at the beginning of their careers in really repugnant ways. And um, this is something that we've seen. Uh, to be happening in virtually every aspect of our culture, politics, entertainment, different areas of the media, sports, um, music now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, as many others have said, it's a it's a real reckoning and um, it's 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 overdue. And um, I think each of these industries is handling it slightly differently, but all taking it very seriously. And, um, you know, there are some just concerns that politicians are um, being treated uh, with a little bit more leniency than others in some cases, and I think that that's something that will have to be litigated out both in the arena of public opinion and in the Congress, and that's what's happening right now. Do you think, Drew, that both leaderships, and I say both Democrat and Republican, both in the House and Senate, are willing to kind of get to a you know a zero tolerance, unacceptable, uh, we're not going to allow it standard, or will it be with some caveats. What do you think is going to happen? I think we have to separate out uh, past actions 
from future actions. I think with respect to future actions, uh, zero tolerance would be the starting point. Mm -hmm. I can't say what's going to happen with respect to past actions because you have so many actors, so many people potentially Mm -hmm. with some exposure um, that it's hard to know. What about a freshman that just... Yeah, and there were this. Well, there have been lots and lots of stories. Um, I think one very concrete effect of all this, uh, in terms of politics, right now things are so feverish on so many issues. It's hard to say what the impact is currently on Mm -hmm. Congress's ability to do business, Mm -hmm. because you've got the tax bill, and you've got Russia, and you've got health care reform. The long-term effect, I think, is going to be a boost to female candidates, Mm -hmm. and and I think likely an increase in, in women going out to vote. Mm-hmm. Do you think, let me, uh, and, and I want to kind of move into, you know, there's a race next week. Um, I think it's next week uh, with uh, Moore in Alabama who's had claims against him. Uh, your former boss, Brian, made very strong statements early on, but now everyone's kind of calmed down to some degree, I guess I would say, and just said, let's just see what the voters do. What do you, well, assuming, let's just assume for a moment for this discussion, he wins. Mm-hmm. What happens? Is it just, I mean, I, maybe it's he wins and then everyone finishes all their budget stuff and gets out of here for Christmas and has some thought that goes on after. What, what happens in the body? And I can only imagine you've sat in those rooms in leadership as a member of the staff. What happens in that situation? Or maybe nothing happens. I don't know. Well, I think it's safe to say it goes that this to what is— Drew said, the past is harder to— Figure out. The, the situation is somewhat sui generis. I don't think anybody's experienced anything quite like this set of circumstances. Um, Leader McConnell himself has been very strict about this kind of thing throughout his career, both in um, recommending, yeah, both in recommending that Bob Pack would be um, mm-hmm. expelled in 1994, and um, then when Larry Craig was was caught doing something he shouldn't be doing, um, suggesting the same, that he leave um, office. And um, and then again, when Roy Moore was found by very, you know, credible reporting to have engaged in some, some bad behavior mm-hmm. earlier in his career, uh, suggesting the same. I think what McConnell has said recently is a recognition of reality that um, this election is, you know, eight days away and um, the voters of Alabama are looking like they may very well choose to send him up here anyway. Um, I think that Governor Ivey and Steve Bannon and others have done a disservice to the Republican voters of Alabama who would very much like to send a Republican to Washington and don't have a choice between they're stuck. good candidates. Um, they have two bad choices, and I think that um, that's really a disservice. And what happens now is is a little bit unclear, though in the Senate the Ethics Committee operates differently than it does in the House, it does not require a recommendation from the majority leader to take up or to pursue an investigation. They may choose to do that. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. The RNC has now said it's going to put money into the Alabama race. Uh, my understanding is that the NRSE is not. And um, I think that, again, there's been um, you know, a certain recognition of reality that the voters are going to do what they're going to do down there, despite the public statements of a lot of people from Washington that... that uh, Moore is not an acceptable candidate, and then the Ethics Committee will um, decide what to do at that point, but it's not entirely clear yet what that's going to be. I would say, just sort of parenthetically, um, that you know, I think any effort to politicize this or to draw political conclusions is really the wrong way to approach this. I think 
one good way to approach all this is for Democrats and Republicans to get together and to say, here's how we will consistently deal with these kinds of charges and set a kind of marker on what is and is not acceptable. Yeah. So that there's no risk of politicizing this and there's no risk of one party trying to, you know, gain advantage politically over the other side, acting more leniently or less leniently. I think that that is, you know, only going to both discourage the public and degrade our politics. I think a lot of people would like for it to, you know, proceed that way, but we'll see if it does. Let me ask you, Drew, the election's coming up for uh, the seat in Alabama. Who do you think wins? And let's say, no matter what your answer is, I'm going to ask you the second question, and that is, if more wins, what happens to the body, if anything? But first, what do you think is going to happen? There's a lot of mixed messages going on down there. They say it's close. Then they tell people, say, well, they're not really saying to the pollsters what they really feel. It's that old that story. And I don't mean that in a negative way, an old story, because that is kind of what's happening in some polling right now. People don't yeah, pass I think, up where they're voting. <laughs> I think usually I'm quick with predictions. But here, Mark, I, I think I'm not going <laughs> to take, I'm I'm gonna take the bait. <laughs> and, and, but here, but, but here's why. Not just because it's close, but because we've seen um, so many surprising election results in the last year. Even when there are elections, like presidential election, where you've had big, historically big samples and you think pollsters know how to poll them, polling one special election two weeks before Christmas in Alabama, I'm sure that there is not an authoritative model for knowing who's going to turn up to vote. I think um, there's a question of turnout on the Democratic side. Because you have a black community that's solidly Democratic, mm-hmm. very solidly Democratic. Alabama is one of the most polarized states, if not the most polarized state. Um, I think 50 percent of the electorate is white evangelical. So you know in advance, if everyone were voting, you could predict, I think, with a great degree of accuracy how people would vote. But you don't know who's going to vote. And I think... It's especially tricky on the Republican side because this isn't an election if if there were other candidates on the ballot, if there were presidential candidates, Mm -hmm. even local elections. You'd imagine pretty high turnout and maybe a lot of Republican voters, as they would habitually, will just pull that lever for Roy Moore. Now they have to decide that they want to go to the polls for the sole purpose of voting for Roy Moore. And I am skeptical about whether turnout would be anything close to what you would model for Turner. Because there's no model for someone facing, you know, Brian uh, said this is sui generis. I agree. And there, and and that's true in terms of how the Senate will deal with more if he's elected. It's true also in terms of modeling the electorate. No one knows uh, really how to do this. What, what, what do you think? I mean, the dynamics. I mean, let's say he gets elected. I mean, you have Flake who made some very, Senator Flake made some very strong comments the last few days, especially about how... You know, this shouldn't be the Republican Party of more or making more the new symbol of the Republican Party. You also have the president in the last 24 hours weighing back into that race where it was almost like a, am away from it, then I'm back in. What does that do, do you think, Brian, to this, this election? Do you think... It, well, it doesn't change anything about the relationship between Senator Flake and the president. <laughs> I have a feeling about that. I had a feeling about that. But do you think that, one, it helps more... Because now he can continue to say, especially with Flake and others, that I'm running against the establishment, with Trump kind of coming on at the back end, says, see, I'm just part of this new shake it up, disruptive, let's get things done kind of attitude. But if he gets elected, I mean, how how do you think that – I can only imagine what that caucus Tuesday would be like. But do you think the election now is – 
you know, we were just talking, is it close? Is it, do you think that more wins this race because these two pieces of the puzzle and plus some other things going on? And, and I think it's a million bucks. There's a very good chance he wins, and I think that the president's um, the president in, wants in, endorsement is, is only going to help. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what happens if and when he does win is, is really anybody's guess. As we would say, uh, always in politics, it's seven, eight days away. That's multiple lifetimes. <laughs> exactly. uh, the media can change your life overnight, literally. So we have another kind of potential. You know, we have uh, some discussion kind of below the service now on top of the service. Tom Cotton, could he become the CIA director in the future? That's a discussion. Does yeah. that what does that mean to the politics of the? I'm assuming that a Republican would be appointed and win in Arkansas. But again, who knows these days? Uh, there's no bench really of Democrats in Arkansas. It's pretty thin. But uh, what's the thinking here, Drew? What do you think happens? I mean, well, I think even before we get to Cotton's, what would happen in in Arkansas and replacing Cotton? I think there's a bit of a shadow problem here for Trump, which is that every time he makes a shift like this, moving Pompeo right. to, to become Secretary of State, he creates an additional confirmation hearing. So you'd have one for state, but now you might have two if he moves to Pompeo, right, CIA. And Trump, uh, like most presidents do, got a free ride from his own party, more or less, in the first round of confirmation hearings. But given performance, given the way the State Department has been run, for example— Pompeo, somewhat controversial figure in some ways, um, although very knowledgeable. If I were Trump, I would seek to minimize the number of confirmation hearings right. I'm going to have because now you're, you're on to the next year with the 2018 elections. You bet. Why start this again? You're now inviting Republicans who have held their fire to criticize your administration because it's almost impossible not to, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Republicans may want to ask a new CIA appointee what he thinks about Russian interference in the elections. Every single question like that is bad for Trump, no matter how it's answered. Right. Why bring that on? What do you think will happen? Do you think there's a potential cotton, I mean, this kind of domino effect that, you know, there there's some movements going on and then cotton ends up potentially as a CIA and then there's an open Senate seat? That certainly seems to be... Um one scenario that's likely Cotton and the president have a close relationship. Um, Tom Cotton's a very sophisticated um, guy who who um, has figured out a way to um, you know become close to virtually everybody of influence <laughs> in today's Washington. And um, you know he's he's very close to the voters of his state. He's very um, close to the president. He's very close to Senate Republican leadership. He's um, a smart. Uh, I think convicted, principled, um, heroic veteran, and um, has a, has a lot of assets. Very young, and um, is is weighing his options. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he's got a safe Senate seat if he wants to keep it for as long as right. he as he wants. So that's that's something that uh, weighs into his decision. And I think that Republicans have a safe Senate seat in Arkansas, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of what Tom Cotton chooses to do. Um, you know, this is a very, very red state at this point, right. Arkansas. And I think the Clintons are probably thinking they should have had their library in Chappaqua rather than <laughs> Little Rock now, um, given the way that that state, state has shifted in the last 15, 20 years. But um, I don't know what Cotton's going to do. I think he would be great in that position at the CIA. I think he'd be great continuing as a senator. And I think Trump would be lucky and fortunate to have him in either place. So let me ask you, Brian, tax reform. Big win for McConnell, big win for the Republicans, big win for the president. Is it good, bad? I can only imagine it's going to be great for their 2018 elections, assuming uh, that 
it stays on the front burner somehow or they keep it. How do you see that uh, piling up for them? I mean, it has to be, they must be, I mean, excited, right? Yeah, when we when we sort of were heading into this tax reform debate, everybody argued that it was a necessary win for Republicans, and that's certainly true. But it's more than just a necessary win. I think it's also um, a huge political win for them. And um, I've seen the same polling you have that suggests that voters don't don't love the bill as it's been um, portrayed. But I think that, the, you know, what's really um, matters is is how this this plays out now that it once it passes. And um, I think Republicans are very confident that what they've done here is is not just, you know, pass a major piece of significant far reaching legislation that affects a lot of middle class Americans in a very positive way and um, helps make us competitive um, in a way that both Democrats and Republicans have arguing that we need to be for years. Um, and keep more jobs here in the process. But um, it's sort of a momentum builder for the party. It's a big win that the president needed. It's a big win Senate Republicans needed. And when you add up that with the regulatory rollback that you have with 14 Congressional um, Review Act resolutions passing, um, which is a huge, you know, huge deal, um, largely underreported over the past year, and then the real transformation of the federal courts through the Republican Senate and the president's um, really aggressive efforts on that front, you've got the makings of a a pretty um, significant year of accomplishment by Republicans, uh, despite all the efforts by Democrats to, to resist and block virtually everything the president's been trying to do. So I think Republicans feel pretty good going into 2018 about what they've done, both mm-hmm. with the courts and legislatively. They wouldn't if they weren't able to pass tax reform. Tax reform would change the deck it, if they didn't it, pass it. It would. Um, but, you know, now that we think it is going to pass, I think it sort of the, the, the whole the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There we go. I, I would I would agree that, you know, it's something something will end up, right? They're gone the conference, there's gonna be a package. President it doesn't matter what the percentages are, twenty, twenty two, he doesn't care. He's gonna be able to have that Rose Garden yep. ceremony yep. and say, Americans, good luck. But let me throw this to you, Drew, as you think about the answer to this question of where how tax plays. Come April mm-hmm. or January through mm-hmm. April mm-hmm. when people are filling out their tax returns mm-hmm. They're going to hear all this about tax relief. It really doesn't take effect till 2019 because it's your 2018 calendar year revenue stream. So is there a play for Democrats there? Or can they – and actually, let me be a little more harsh to my Democratic friends. Can they actually get their act together and have a message that says – Look, you didn't get it. Yeah, and, and I think they're not usually capable of a single I'm not, simple I'm not message. Sure Democrats have to have <laughs> to know, do just, that much work though to develop this message. I'm one of those people who thinks Democrats don't need a better message. They can actually run against Trump and win, and I think uh, we've seen that in special election turnout numbers. But it's the tax reform specifically. Um, I went um, in the first year of the Obama administration, 2009, there were a whole lot of tax cuts. And the Washington Post polled in February of 2010 to ask people whether their taxes had been cut. Most people's taxes had been cut in one way or another. Roughly 50 percent of people said there had been no tax reductions. 30 percent said their taxes went up. And only about 20 percent said their taxes went down. That is consistent historically. People don't believe their taxes were cut 
even if they are indeed paying lower taxes. That's because to us in Washington, we look at one year as a baseline, and the next year you went up a little bit, you went down a little bit in payments. But the people who are actually paying taxes, uh, homeowners, moms and dads, tax payments are cumulative. I paid too much last year. Now I'm writing another one of these checks, and I'm paying too much again. So, so unless you lower someone's taxes radically or write them a check or eliminate some, a specific tax altogether, people don't really register that their taxes were cut. So, so if you're looking at one accomplishment, there may be other economic – You know, Brian in the past has talked about macroeconomic reasons why you would want to enact these tax cuts. But the argument that voters will reward you for it historically – that doesn't appear to be true because they don't recognize that their taxes have been cut. Do you think the the overall, let's just walk and we're closing in our final few moments here, but let's say you get to September or October of next year, 2018, elections are happening, everything's kind of hyped up, yeah. tax reform, but the market is still doing well. Interest rates are kind of be probably moderately low still because I don't think even with the Federal Reserve, they can't move them up quick mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. So you don't see inflation really. You still have some decent growth. Can the Republicans say this? Without that tax reform bill, we would have never had this great growth. Well, they will say it, right? I, I is think, it believable, I, I, I guess? I think is Trump, that the... Trump has said that just his mere election is what has caused the stock market uh, rise. Yeah, they call it the Trump bump. The Trump bump. Right. Um, at the same time, you've had the stock market rise, but you've had low inflation, stable housing prices. And low interest rates. And, and low very unemployment, low. very and importantly, right? Which raises the question, why cut taxes? Right. What do you think? Is that kind of the, the pitch line that you can that tell? Happens? You can tell Drew's a Democrat <laughs> by, that, it's, it's, by yeah. that statement alone. Why I mean, not raise taxes? <laughs> right. The idea that people wouldn't want to keep more of their money is sort of an article of faith among Republicans. For some reason, Democrats don't seem to share it, and um, it's always a mystery, <laughs> I knew a head scratcher. For that up a little um, bit. I think. Look, the the president, the incumbent president, is is going to get credit for whatever the economy is doing. Yeah, whatever Democrats can argue as as long as they want that Trump has nothing to do with it. But the fact is the public is going to give him credit if the economy is doing well and probably blame him if it's not doing well. But um, as of now, it's it's doing pretty well. And if you m- marry up um, pay increases for middle class Americans to the um, increases in the market that we've seen in the last 12 months, um, you know, that's a pretty good economic story for the president to tell. One thing about Trump and credit, though. Um, if you look at regular public opinion polling, so that goes back to the Truman administration and then every presidency since, every president at this point had a net positive favorable rating. Trump's is radically net negative, I think, by, by more than 18 points. So even though the economy has been quite good, he's in a ditch popularity-wise. So he gives himself credit. That's what I was saying earlier. He credits probably himself. probably his hardcore voters give him well, no, hard, no, no Yeah, question. but it's not clear how big the hardcore is. Even with that, with these economic circumstances, he should be a hell of a lot more popular if he were really broadly getting credit for this. So I'm not sure. It may be different for Republicans in Congress, for your own congressman who you're voting for. But I don't think the president, the president so far isn't getting much out of this Trump bump. I mean, he's at, what, 36 percent favorable? I mean, maybe if inflation rises, he goes down to 32 percent. But he doesn't seem to have a path to even get to 40 percent. Let me throw this one data point out in text, and I'm going to ask you kind of a closing question because uh, we're in the holiday spirit. But just some data from congressional research, uh, in, and I've probably said this before, but just to repeat it, in 1945, 
to share the shared responsibility between corporate taxes and individual taxes to support the federal government was one dollar to one dollar. Mm-hmm. You pay a dollar mm-hmm. individual, dollar mm-hmm. corporate. Today, that ratio is five dollars of individual taxes for every one dollar in corporate. And the final number is on a four trillion dollar budget, corporate income tax or support taxes. The support is about three hundred billion dollars in total out of four trillion. It's an interesting data point, mm-hmm. but when you put that over to the side, the five to one ratio, and then you think about individuals who pay now more uh, local taxes, state taxes. To your point, Brian. They're feeling like there's a lot on their back, and they're looking for somebody somewhere to get relief. But I do agree with you, Drew. I can't recall when I was in the Senate when we passed the $300 billion payroll reduction. Yeah. That How much of those voters thank you for that? Not one. <laughs> not one. Because it's... it's that's what every senator says. Right. Not one. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting in 18. So here's... We like to always say, um, all I want for Christmas is... And so we're in Washington, D.C. in the political time. It is the holiday season. Uh, if you had your one policy gift or gift, uh, however you want to classify it, under the tree at Christmas time for Washington, what would it be? Well, Drew? well, from Washington, I'd like to see the preservation of the individual mandate somehow in the final tax reform bill. And I'd certainly like to see Alexander Murray pass even though it won't mitigate all the problems caused by repeal of the individual mandate. Brian? A couple more uh, circuit court judges. <laughs> a couple more circuit court. All I, I said this in the last Killing one. me with those judges. I know. <laughs> As I said in the last uh, podcast, I said, all I want is the two sides that work together on something. I don't even care what it is. The only thing they seem to find common ground on policy right now is the sexual harassment policy. So maybe we can expand that a little bit and find some new items to work on. So we'll leave it at that. It is the holiday season. Wish you both the best in the season and uh, look forward to the new year. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.